Hi everyone, I'm Josh, and this is The Emerald, Currents and Trends Through a Mythic Lens, the podcast where we explore an ever-changing world and our lives in it through the lens of myth, story, and imagination. The Emerald, all that's happening on this green jewel in space. In January 2018, a three-year-old boy named Casey Hathaway went missing in the woods outside of Arenal, North Carolina. His parents looked everywhere and couldn't find him. The January temperatures in the woods and mountains surrounding Arenal were dropping into the 20s, and there was grave concern for his safety. Authorities were alerted. Police searches were conducted, but they couldn't find little Casey. Nearly three days later, Casey appeared 50 yards from where he had been lost. He was soaking wet, cold and tangled in thorns, but he was alive. This in itself seemed something of a miracle. Lost toddlers have a very low survival rate in the wild in these types of conditions. They don't instinctively seek shelter. They don't know about which leaves make good insulators. They don't know how you can stuff your clothes with grasses to make an instant down jacket. In this day and age, most adults probably don't know that either. So anyway, the adults were shocked to see him unharmed and naturally wanted to know how he survived and Casey told them that he hadn't been alone out there. He said he had help. He said that a bear had kept him safe. A bear, out there in the North Carolina wilds. Whether it was a flesh-and-blood bear or a bear of Casey's imagining was never proven, but his family believed him. The story gained local popularity. A couple of weeks after Casey's short disappearance, the Craven County Sheriff's Office posted a social media update confirming that there was no evidence of any kidnapping in the case, and offering some words of gratitude to the community for the support during the ordeal. They also posted a picture of Casey along with a photo of a bear, and these words from the Bible. He called a little child to him and placed that child among them. Matthew 18, I think it was. The post resulted in a predictable slew of commentary, with predictably vehement opinions on either side, finally causing one exasperated user to proclaim, You guys, there is no magic Jesus bear. Magic Jesus bear. Hold that somewhat silly phrase in the back of your mind for a bit, and we'll be right back. A short hop over the pond from North Carolina in the Swiss Alps, there are a series of caves with names like Dragon's Den, Wild Man's Cave, and Wild Chapel. These caves have yielded some very, very early human artifacts. Artifacts over 75,000 years old, in fact. And these artifacts are particularly important because they are among the earliest evidence of organized worship by human beings. Altars. The earliest altars, Joseph Campbell explains, of any kind yet found or known of anywhere in the world. And what is the object of veneration of these altars? Bears. It would be easy to file this as a nice little side note about bears, that Neanderthals and early Homo sapiens worshipped them as deities along with presumably many other animal spirits, but that's not the full story. 
Bear worship isn't a random localized thing. Paleolithic caves from Scandinavia to France to Siberia feature what appear to be deliberately organized bear altars, stacked bear skulls, similar patterns of bone arrangement, often featuring a leg bone thrust through an eye socket. The oldest musical instrument ever found holes drilled into a bear femur 43,000 years ago. And these finds cross a time span of tens of thousands of years, and a geography of thousands upon thousands of miles. So while some archaeologists have maintained that there isn't enough evidence to confirm a Paleolithic bear cult, many strongly assert that there was. And the real evidence can be found today in the living cultures of the northern latitudes, almost all of whom venerate bears, and do so in strikingly similar ways. What Joseph Campbell calls, quote, a circumpolar culture of bear worship. As he says, vestiges of a circumpolar Paleolithic cult of the bear have been identified throughout the Arctic, from Finland and northern Russia, across Siberia and Alaska, to Labrador and Hudson Bay, among the Finns and Laps, Ostiaks and Vogel, Orochi of the Amur River region, Gilyaks, Goldie, and peoples of Kamchatka, the Nootka, Tlingit, Kwakutl, and others of the northwest American coast, and the Algonquins of the northeast. And in some of these cultures, the bear is so sacred to even speak its name is forbidden. Among the Ainu people in Japan, for example, the word for bear is the same as the word for god. Why? Bears have, of course, captured mythic imagination for tens and perhaps hundreds of thousands of years. They find their way all the way from deep caves of Paleolithic art to simple modern fairy tales like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. Through this history, the bear shapeshifts appearing in some cultures as a wise old mountain hermit, in others as a vision of wildness and untamed nature itself, in others the guardian of a deep secret, in others a punished king or an incarnate deity from the stars whose sacrifice is required to reunite it with the sky above. To many, the bear forms the central pillar of their spiritual life, and this has everything to do with what bears are and what they do. I'm not just going to use today's episode to recount bear stories. That would take episode upon episode. And while we'll hear a couple of them, that's not the heart of where we're going. Today we're going to see if the bear can help us understand the human imagination and vision of the cosmos a little bit more. To understand how simple things that we observe and interact with, magnified over time, and I mean long, long periods of time, form the core of human ideas, ideologies, and practices. As I've explored on a recent podcast about animals called the Fauna Mandala, animals have been key in shaping human imagination and tradition since the beginning. It's not a stretch to say human beings have, over the long durée, learned a whole lot from bears. And it may not be a stretch even to posit that some of our deepest spiritual archetypes and practices, including the practice of meditation itself, come directly from bears. Today on the Emerald, Great Bear the being at the heart of global tradition. Take a globe, flip it so you're looking straight at the North Pole. Trace your finger around the line of 60 degrees northern latitude, and you have mapped in a quick instant the millions upon millions of square miles of planet Earth that are called the Arctic, a vast space, 
home to some of the best preserved wilderness on the planet, and home to a whole lot of bears. The word Arctic, of course, means the place of the bear, Arctos meaning bear in Greek. It is literally bear land. While many of the world's bear species can be found south of the Arctic, the great populations of bears are in the north. In these northern latitudes, one still finds the bears' influence everywhere, in the names of cities like Berlin, Germany, and Bern, Switzerland, home to an ancient bear cult itself, and in Nordic names like Bjorn, in tales of Viking warriors who went berserk, literally put on the bear shirt, when they went into battle with the fierceness of a she-bear defending her cubs. This boreal realm of the bear is also where the constellations of the Great Bear and Lesser Bear are most visible, always present in the far northern sky. And when anthropologists map out the number of cultures that have referred to this exact grouping of stars as the bear, from Siberians to Greeks to Iroquois and Lakota and Wampanoag tribes tens of thousands of miles away, we can understand that human beings must have named this star group a very, very, very long time ago and that for hundreds of generations people have watched a great bright bear amble across the skies of this world and the skies of their own imaginations. The defining characteristic of the great bear constellation is its proximity to and its circular dance around the North Star. The bear ascends above the star and waxes in its full glory in the Arctic skies, and then plummets down towards the horizon, depending on how far south you are, part of it even remaining hidden for part of the year. This cycle of waxing and waning in potency and visibility mirrors closely the annual cycle of the bear itself, which spends part of the year active and out in the world, and part of the year in hibernation. It is easy to imagine why this star cluster became associated with bears and named after bears, a strong, bold constellation that follows a very visible cycle of regeneration, just like its ursine counterpart. All stars circle the North Star. But with these stars, the wheel of regeneration is obvious, and the creature that clearly mirrored this cycle most closely was the bear. try to piece together why bears have been the object of human veneration for so long, the first thing that comes to mind is the bear's size and strength. And that's understandable. Bears certainly are powerful, as anyone who has seen a grizzly in the wild can attest. I saw one once, on the Canada-Montana border. I was hiking in Waterton Park, came round a corner, and there he was, rolling on his back in a sunlit meadow. Of course, the friend I was hiking with thought for some reason he should whistle at him like a dog and the quick, tranquil vision of this lovely creature sunning himself quickly transformed to a vision of power and terror as the grizzly stood up at attention, a good seven feet tall, sniffing the air and looking poised to run right at us. The cave bears of the Paleolithic were far more formidable, with massive jaws and teeth and full-grown males weighing up to 2,200 pounds. As comparison, male grizzlies usually weigh between 400 to 800 pounds, and even polar bears only get up to 1,500. So imagine what the cave bear was to Paleolithic people. Certainly a vision of power. But there were other animals of even more immense power at that time. Mammoths, mastodons, massive saber-toothed cats. Why the focus on bears? 
It would be the conceit of a modern mind, detached from real and regular interaction with bears, to think that size and strength are the only reasons bears were and are the center of so much spiritual recognition. Bears are much more than this. Among large mammals that our ancestors encountered regularly, bears are perhaps the most human. Their eyes are on the front of their face, just like ours. Their paws look surprisingly like hands. And for Paleolithic artists who saw power and potency in handprints, surely the bear paw, with its claws like living talismans, must have been a shape that inspired awe. A seated bear seems to almost exude a simple wisdom, a sage-like quality, which is why, of course, thousands of years later, authors have extolled the Taoist outlook of Winnie the Pooh in his love of honey and the simple things in life. I think, said Pooh, that we should eat all the honey now so that we don't have to carry it with us. Bears also have a very human diet. They dig for roots and berries and hunt for fish. They even seem to use certain plants as medicines, which is why culture upon culture views the bear as the source of medicinal knowledge. But there's more still. There are certain central aspects of bear behavior that have exerted a deep and lasting imprint on the human psyche, an imprint of such primacy that we do not even realize it's there. I want us to dive into deep time here. Into the tens and even hundreds of thousands of years humans have spent observing and interacting with bears, invoking the bear, visioning the bear, and what those deep visions over that long, long span of time would have taught us. We need to try to grasp how central animals are to the human learning process, how much and how often human beings spent connecting to and learning from animals, when for thousands of years animals were exactly what there was to learn from, when human beings found caves to live in, Thousands upon thousands of years ago, often we found bears either still there or the remains of bears that had been there, and these bears left us clear signs to follow. Bears scratch on cave walls and leave marks. It's quite possible that before the first cave dwellers painted or scratched a cave wall, they saw bears do it first. To the point that at many of the sites of ancient Paleolithic art, there is a good deal of art specifically centered around areas where the bear had already scratched. These scratchings meant something. A sacred being had left their mark. And in the unified aesthetic worldview of early human beings, to leave a mark was a sacred thing, and the bears showed us how to do it. So we see bears right at the deep origins of human artistry. Thus we may say, says Joseph Campbell, that the master bear was the first teacher of this animal art, and where he touched was a proper place for animal magic. In these early caves, the bears hibernated in hollows, and these hollows became places of veneration. As Philippe Grote says in his visionary book, Ice Age Art and the Bear Cult, quote, We know that the people who visited the caves in the Orignacian, that's 43 to 33,000 years ago, regarded the bear hollows, the places where the bear hibernated in winter, as spiritually significant, and that shamans used bear hollows as places of meditation and ritual. And why would these places of hibernation be treated with such awe? We have to imagine what it was for human beings to witness the seasonal cycle of the bear, a powerful, robust creature, vital and fierce, that puts itself through a type of ritual death or slumber, just as the earth is going through a similar death or slumber in the cold of winter, only to rise again in spring as new life itself is rising. As Grote says, Clearly the bear was master of this pristine world. Heaven and earth favored the bear. 
The earth took it back into its womb to protect it during the harsh winter. There the bear meditated without food, apparently in some light, trance-like sleep. When it ended its months-long meditation, it stretched itself and scratched the walls of its den. Then it emerged from the underworld coming with the gift of the approaching spring. Only when it emerged did new life return to the world above. Bears embody the cycle of the seasons in a way that few creatures overtly do, and so the bear may have become synonymous with the cycle of the seasons, even the cause of the cycle of the seasons. And the bear's sacrifice, the willful and ritualized little death that the bear undertakes every year, is a sacrifice for the world itself. The world reawakens every year because of this sagely, artistic, visionary, powerful figure who secludes himself in a cave and puts himself in a dreamlike state of deprivation so that spring might come again to the world. Sound familiar? This vision is so closely and utterly linked to the role of the shaman, and by extension the primary themes of all the religions of the world, that it is hard to imagine that bears did not directly influence this vision. For where did the shamans get the idea to make marks on the cave wall, to seclude themselves in a little hollow, to deprive themselves of food and enter a dreamlike state, and in doing so to rise again for the good of the people? Where did the early, early Himalayan yogis, and I mean way back, before the word yoga, and before the Sanskrit language, and before the written word at all, get the idea of going into a cave and literally slowing their heart rates in order to enter the state of trance and transform? Could it be from watching bears? One of the foremost spiritual themes found in culture upon culture across the world is that of a divine being who undertakes self-sacrifice for the good of the world. The healing of the world necessitates this being's sacrifice, in fact. The Tungus of Siberia see the bear as this divine being, and in slaying the bear they are simultaneously liberating its spirit and sending it back to the sky, right to the constellation of the great bear in fact, which they too recognize as a bear, for a great rejoining while healing the tribe and ensuring the continuance of the seasonal cycle. In many cultures like the Tungus, the bear hunt is more ritual in nature than dietary necessity. Bears are rarely a staple food. They are killed because to kill a bear is to ensure the continuance of the seasonal cycle. Bear hunts are imbued with such power and veneration that in certain cultures, the killer of the bear is not even to be looked at for a number of days after the slaying takes place. It is a deeply sacred act to kill a bear, inextricably tied to the movement of nature itself. The Ainu of northern Japan, who, as I mentioned, have the same word for bear as they do for god, conduct an annual ritual in which a young bear cub is sacrificed. Here's how Joseph Campbell describes it. When a very young black bear cub is caught in the mountains, it is brought in triumph to the village, where it is suckled by one of the women, plays about in the lodge with her children, and is treated with great affection. As soon as it becomes big enough to hurt and scratch when it hugs, however, it's put into a strong wooden cage and kept there for about two years, fed on fish and millet porridge 
until one fine September day when the time is judged to have come to release it from its body and speed it happily back to its mountain home. The festival of this important sacrifice is called Iomande, which means to send away. The whole spirit of the feast is of a joyous send-off, and the bear is supposed to be extremely happy, though perhaps surprised if this should happen to be the first time that he has visited the Ainus, to be thus entertained. The man who is to give the feast calls out to the people of his village, I am about to sacrifice the dear little divine being from among the mountains. My friends and masters come to the feast. Let us enjoy together the delights of the sending away. Come, come all. The men approach the bear cage, the women and children follow, dancing and singing, and the whole company sits in a circle before the bear, while one of their number, moving very close to the cage, lets the little visiting god know what is about to happen. O divine one, you were sent into this world for us to hunt. Precious little divinity, we adore thee. Pray, hear our prayer. We have nourished and brought you up with a great deal of pain and trouble because we love you so. And now that you have grown big, we are about to send you back to your father and mother. When you come to them, please speak well of us and tell them how kind we have been. Please come to us again, and we shall again do you the honor of a sacrifice. A feast is celebrated, there is dancing, while the woman who suckled the bear alternately weeps and laughs, along with some of the older women who have suckled many young bears and know something of the mixed feelings of waving goodbye. The image of the Ainu woman suckling a divine being from her own breast, a divine being who is to be sacrificed for the good of the world, and his flesh to be eaten and blood drank as redemption, is one that should be very, very familiar to all Christians. Remember? Magic Jesus Bear? But we're not quite there yet. How do we get there? Well, the vision of the seasonal sacrifice of divinity crosses oceans and great ranges and tens of thousands of years. The Paleolithic understanding of the bear reaches long, curved claws into Scandinavia, into the Germanic kingdoms, and into ancient Greece. The Greek god Zeus, his name concurrent with the Latin words Deus and later Spanish Dios, and therefore with the Judeo-Christian god, was raised on bear milk. The nature goddess Artemis, whose name itself has a little bear in it, was the goddess of birth and midwives who owed their craft to the wise mother bears who emerged from their caves in spring with cubs. Artemis was served by little girls named Arctoi, she-bears, who undertook a practice of austerity and self-sacrifice for the good of the tribe to atone for the wrongful killing of a bear. And this word for bear, Arctoi, like Arctic, is also present in the name Arthur, the king of legend whose name literally means bear, and who also shares a deep connection to the seasonal cycle of nature. King Arthur himself is a figure of sacrifice and renewal, just like a bear. The king and the land are one, Merlin utters to Arthur, at least in the film Excalibur anyway. And yet, it is only through Arthur's suffering and slumber that the land is restored to wholeness and the wasteland of winter blossoms into spring, just like the bear. And also like another king, the King Christ of the Christian tradition, who is himself a vision of power and sacrifice closely tied to the seasons, born at winter solstice, and sacrificed just in time for a springtime resurrection, giving his blood and body to restore the world. Magic Jesus Bear
magic Jesus bear may or may not have helped little Casey Hathaway in the woods of North Carolina, but the bear, or Jesus, or King Arthur, or the divine mountain spirit of the Ainu, the resurrected being that seasonally saves the tribe through his winter sacrifice, can be found literally across the globe. Jesus, of course, wears a crown of thorns, a painful reminder of the love he has for the world that presses into his temples. That love and its proximity to sacrifice and pain are at the heart of many bear myths. There's an old Nanite tale about a boy named Anga who goes on a quest to slay a great bear, for its hide is the only thing that can heal his ailing mother. Martin Shaw retells it in his wonderful book, A Branch from the Lightning Tree. Quote, After more treacherous journeying, Anga came to a towering mountain, so high your eyes would strain and go blind if you tried to see the top of it. Still, holding the image of his mother in his mind, he started climbing. Soon his hands were bleeding from the ragged outcrops. The wind lashed his thin shoulders and icy snow fell on his upturned face. All was dark. He came to a rough ledge that was the entrance to a deep, deep cavern. Slowly walking down the tunnel, he came across a bear of huge size. The king of all bears. The great bear. Asleep in a corner, paws wrapped around his head. The bear moaned fretfully. Anga noticed a sharp splinter buried deep in one of his paws. Compassion overriding his fear, Anga tied his rope around the splinter, strained and tugged, and finally extracted the splinter from the bear's swollen paw. With a roar of pain, the great bear awoke. But when he saw Anga with the splinter, he was overcome with gratitude. For three agonizing years I have been in pain, never being able to remove that splinter. You have saved me from my torment. How can I thank you? Give me your fur, said Anga, so I can cure my mother. The great bear took off his fur and handed it to Anga, who set off at once back to his settlement, where his mother was instantly and forever cured. The tale of the wounded king and the compassion necessary to save him bears, no pun intended, a more than passing resemblance to the story of the Holy Grail, part of the Arthurian legends, which can be literally translated to the legends of the great bear, in which the Mother Earth is healed by the compassion of a young man attending to a king's wound. The blessing bestowed by the great bear upon his healing is his own skin, his fur, the bare robe which is to be ritually worn or put on by human beings. In the Grail legend, it is the gift that heals the wasteland and restores the land to beauty, the gift of the body and blood, the gift of redemption. The gift of putting on the bear's skin grants human beings the power to walk in the bear's footsteps, to see with its eyes. It is the gift of the trance state, which the bears are masters of through hibernating. It is the gift of art and the power and potency that comes from knowing how to make it and where to place it, which the bear knows from its scratching on the cave walls. It is the gift of plant medicines, which the bear reveals to us through their own foraging. It is the gift of knowing how to be attuned to the cycle of the seasons, which the bear itself governs. And it is literally the gift of warmth in the winter. In giving its skin, therefore, the bear is a portal to another world, another way of seeing and being, 
Certainly, early shamans donned the skins of bears to gain the vision of bears, to gain access to the world of trance that was the dominion of hibernating bears. The practice of the donning of the bear skin as a practice of entering the world of trance crosses tens of thousands of years to the world of the Nordic warrior, who harnessed that trance as a way to be stronger in battle. Julius Caesar spoke of the Fuhrer Teutonicus, a mad berserk rage that the Teutons seemed to be able to harness in battle. As the Icelandic sources say, quote, In battle, the berserkers were subject to fits of frenzy. They would howl like wild beasts, foamed at the mouth, and gnawed the iron rim of their shields. According to belief, during these fits, they were immune to steel and fire, and made great havoc in the ranks of the enemy. When the fever abated, they were weak and tame. As Hilda Davidson says in her book, Shape Changing in the Old Norse Sagas, to go berserk was to hamask, which translates as change form. Some scholars have interpreted those who could transform as a berserker as hamramer, or shape strong, literally able to shapeshift into a bear's form. So the donning of the bearskin had particular application in battle for certain clans of warriors, but had a far broader meaning as well. Like Tolkien's beloved character Bjorn, or the one-eyed Norse god Odin himself, clearly a shamanic figure, certain people were said to be able to shapeshift into bear form directly. We're going to have an upcoming episode specifically devoted to shapeshifting, but let's just say that this vision of shifting shape into the bear, in its deepest, oldest sense, is the journey into the spiritual world, the world of art, and trance, and medicine connection to the rhythms of nature of which the bear, for the past 200,000 years or so, has been the master. This invitation to don the bear robe is the invitation to see, to wonder, to cast ourselves into trance, to become one with nature, to become our true selves. The Norwegian story of Valaman and the Third Daughter, which Martin Shaw also recounts in A Branch from the Lightning Tree, offers us this gift of the bear succinctly and beautifully. When a young princess, playing in the castle garden, sees a beautiful white bear lying on its back, playing with a golden wreath. The strangeness of the scene and the glow of the wreath opened a longing in her heart to possess it, says Shaw. She offered riches of many kinds, but the bear said there was only one possible exchange. Not gold, not land, not status, but herself. The gifts of the bear are there for us. And of course, all we have to do, like the youngest daughter in the story, is to give ourselves to the bear completely. This episode contains references to many books, articles, and movies. These include the Bible, King James Version, Excalibur, the excellent 1981 film by John Borman, which was the first R-rated movie I ever saw, A Branch from the Lightning Tree by Martin Shaw, The Tao of Pooh by Benjamin Hoff, Joseph Campbell's Masks of God series, Ice Age Art and the Bear Cult by Philip Grote, 
The Hobbit by J.R.R. Tolkien, shape-changing in the Old Norse sagas by Hilda Davidson, shape-shifting in Old Norse Icelandic literature by Lionel Parabo, Bear, Myth, Animal, and Icon by Wolf D. Storl, and of course, Goldilocks and the Three Bears. If you liked what you heard today, please consider becoming a patron. You can find out more at patreon.com slash the emerald podcast that's patreon p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the emerald podcast there are patronage levels starting for as low as six dollars per month and patrons get a variety of benefits that are listed on the site i hope you enjoy today's episode and until next time may we live lives that are driven forth by imagination, vision, and wonder.